Today we have Andrew and Mimi Song talking with us. Andrew is a pastor at a local church and Mimi is a midwife here in Atlanta. We enjoy listening to their really interesting story and we hope you guys enjoy it as well. Fun fact, Andrew and I went to the same high school, but when he was a senior, I was still in the first grade. Generational gap! Okay, so before we get into the meat of this podcast today, we're going to introduce who Mimi and Andrew are. Okay, so they can totally introduce themselves, but... <laughs> but we I, have personal... Yeah. They have personal stories. John and Jen do. Yeah, for me, I want to say that Andrew and Mimi mean a lot to me because they were like my first friends, like for real, for real friends that I didn't know before I moved here that... I really just fell in love with those people and you know their songs too were probably related (laughs) and um, they're also people of faith and um, I don't know they just really were there for me and John when we were struggling a lot as a couple and um, just keeping together I always tell people who are like dating like yeah you always need like another couple to fight with you for your marriage or your relationship because Andrew and Mimi were there for us when we were struggle bus. So I remember a situation where like you and I were literally about to call it quits. Like we were literally about to call it quits. I remember that day like yesterday. And Andrew forced himself <laughs> over to our house with Mimi and he wouldn't say no. He had to come into the house. And this was when we lived in Midtown. I don't know if you remember, we were at the old place and then just that like one hour talk kind of like walked what was really me like walked me off the ledge and it was like that was something that was very like unique and I've never had something like that happen before in my life and it was like a moment where I really saw like the beauty and what empathy looks like in a lot of ways and like what like what like love really looks like outside of family so that's like something that's going to stick with me forever but john probably has a totally different outlook on who you guys were from like day one because you have been friends for so long let me tell you about john day one (laughs) i mean yo keep it pg i I met john i think i was in sixth grade i don't remember the first day i met john but it was in sixth grade. I remember the first day I met you. At Webbridge Middle School. Like, somehow I was, like, talking with my brother, who's also the same age as John. And they just, I just hit it off and was friends at the time. And and John was just this, like, older brother figure, this young type of guy that seemed so mysterious. Like, you knew, like, he was up to something no good, but you still wanted to be around that. <laughs> Um, because it was just the personality that type of, I mean, even today he's still one of those guys that probably still exudes that quality, but yeah, it was interesting because we were starting a church and actually we had started the church and we're throwing out invites to people that we thought would be just, um, I guess people who would benefit from being a part of this community. And we, I reached out to John, um, because I knew he was in Atlanta and so on and so forth. And then found out that him and Jen got married and so he came through, and then from there, kind of reignited 
our friendship, which led us, you know, just becoming great friends up until now. But I think what's interesting is as second generation Korean Americans, like we've all seen our parents really have rough marriages and I am a product of a broken family and you've never you never saw that you know you never saw when parents were having issues they never talked to their friends you know Mm -hmm. and they always made sure that they were showing like oh this is our family is fantastic and we don't have issues but we knew that every single family whatever type of problem it was um, whether it was between you know mom and dad or um, sons and parents or daughters and parents, whatever it was, they always had issues, but nobody knew about them, which is why I think we see a lot of divorce that happened in our parents' generation and separation that happened, but then a lot of brokenness and no healing from it. Um, so now in our generation, I think that's something that we've learned is that like we can't do it by ourselves. No, not if we want to change things. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it's easier. It's actually easier to just call it quits when it's hard. Um, and I think that's why there is such a thing as a covenant in marriage mm-hmm. because it, it's hard. And without making that promise of saying through thickness and what is it? Through thick, thick and, thin. and thin. No, through thick and thin that you'll fight through it, you know, because you've made a promise and covenant to each other um, forever. I'll get up again, again. Part of the reason why we, me and John and Jen and Mimi all got reconnected was because I moved back because Mimi started a church with our lead pastor called Four Points, and I was finishing seminary um, and was looking for a job. We were about to get married in March of 2013. So ended up moving back down to Atlanta to serve at this church that Mimi and our lead pastor started, uh, which was meeting over in the, what is that, Doraville area at the time. And as we were building that church, later that October is when we had, when I had reached out to uh, John and Jen, and that's when we all got reconnected um, just as friends. And so, yeah, for the past five years I've been, or no, almost close to seven years been serving uh at that church and also been married for six basically as long as i've been at the church i've been married mm-hmm. yeah so that ultimately what brought me back but born and raised in duluth uh duluth i would say well, john's, no, creek. john's creek now john's, yeah, john's, john's creek, creek now yeah so if georgia, you're yeah. Yeah, if georgia. you're original <laughs> if you are original to this area john's creek was duluth that's true. And then uh, went to Northview High School. We just found out me and Kat went to the same school. She said that she graduated in 16. Yeah. And I said I graduated <laughs> in 04. And then she looked just at me like crazy. She looked difference. at me like I was crazy. I think I'm like, I think when I graduated, they celebrated like the 10th class that graduated from Northview. Yes. And I was before that class. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. so by no means am I old, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mimi works currently right now in Marietta. Yes. I am a certified nurse midwife. Whoop, whoop. And some people may not know what that is. Um, I just go around homes and deliver babies inside their homes. That's not what you do. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I can if I wanted to, but I actually work in a hospital. I work at uh, uh, Wellstar Kennestone, Wellstar Kennestone uh, Hospital, and 
we we deliver babies and then also um we can also take care of the woman throughout their whole lifespan so from the starting of your period to menopause we can take care of you so a lot of people have misconceptions about midwives thinking that we're very granola and we do everything natural and i think that is a great option but we also are trained medically so we're able to handle a little bit more um, and prescribe medication see patients in the office and all of those things so yeah, after I watched the documentary Business of Being Born, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend everyone watch, I was okay. like, I for sure want a doula and I for sure want a midwife. And that's why I loved that Mimi was pursuing becoming a midwife like when I first met her. And now mm-hmm. she did it and she's <laughs> doing it. That's shout out to Ricky Lake for those people. For real, who know shout, Ricky out Ricky Lake Lake for shout out Ricky Lake for educating women that we have options. Yes, yes. And there are options. And not to say one way is better than right. the other, but. Know that you can try one way, and if that doesn't work for you, you have other ways to deliver a baby. So, yes. Yeah. Can y'all actually uh, tell the listeners how you two got together? Because I really love that you were friends before. All right. Here is the, for the sake of time, we'll try to do the short, concise version. So, um, we grew up basically like three miles from each other. And we met each other on the summer going into high school at a retreat. Um, and so we just became friends because we were like, hey, we're going to the same high school. Like, cool. We'll know each other when we when we move up. So we became friends freshman and sophomore year. We were close friends, like really close. Um, and then I had transferred to a new high school, which was Northview, because they had just opened up and I got redistricted for that. And so for those two years, we actually just didn't really keep in touch because there was no social media back then really no cell phones either back then i had a cell phone oh fancy um (laughs) i did not i did not i did not so anyways um graduated both graduated the same year and then realized we were both starting at georgia state at the same time so we're like oh super fun and so we became really close for that first year uh freshman year we had a it was me and the me, Andrew, and two other girls, and okay, our acronyms okay. <laughs> made up um, Mama, so we called each other Mama. So it was Mimi, Andrew, Michelle, Angela, and we just hung out all the time. I think uh, they called themselves Mama. I was just like hanging out with friends, all right? Um, and so for about a year and a half, uh, we were just, we were really close, became really close friends. And then I had transferred up to a Christian college in Illinois called Wheaton College. And so when I left, we honestly just kind of not stopped being friends, but you just don't you just don't keep in touch. Um, And then for about what do you think, like four years, four or five years, something like that. For about four or five years, I was really just like establishing roots and really felt like Chicago was going to be home for me. And then through that time, my brother ended up dating one of Mimi's best friends, childhood friends growing Mm up. And so they started dating, and then they had gotten engaged. And through that engagement, um, me and Mimi got reconnected because it was like, oh my gosh, my brother's engaged to your best friend, um, so on and so forth. And we started texting, we started calling, and just reconnected at that time. And I think for both of our seasons of life, specifically then, we were both in a place where like, hey, maybe, you know, what is happening and 
you know, maybe this is something we should pursue. And we talked a little bit more about that. And then later, you know, out of a, because of a, just a number of different events that had happened, uh, we ended up really hitting it off and reconnecting well and started dating in 2000. 13. No. No, I missed it. 2010. <laughs> 2010. We're way off. Oh, yeah. We got married in 13. Yes. Uh, 2010. We started dating in 2010. Started dating in 2010. And then, um, so we were long distance from the very get-go, which, interestingly enough, when we started dating, we started dating over the phone, and like we were just like, oh, we should officially start dating, and so on and so forth. And then... Um, I came down for that 4th of July, that same summer. And that was the first time me and Mimi saw each other in 10 years? No, two years. Face to face. Andrew's Butcher, this so bad. <laughs> two years, because um, Jen and David, we saw each other when um, Jen graduated UGA. Oh, but we didn't actually hang out, hang out. No. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So we never actually had like a face-to-face conversation in close to 10 years. Yeah. And then all yeah. of a sudden when we... So we were already dating. We were already dating before we like actually like hung out face-to-face in 10 years. I remember like as I was getting ready to come down, I was just like, hey, so when I see you, like what's going to happen? You know? Do we hug? Or Do we handshake, handshake? High five? Like what's, what's going to happen? So mm. like we literally had to game plan this out so we didn't have to like, we obviously had to look at each other no longer as friends but as like a dating couple. And so Mimi was just like, I don't know. I'll just follow your lead. Mm. And so I could have gone like way out of left field, right? Done some crazy. But uh, we ended up just hugging and you guys uh, we ended up having brunch that day and um, that was really 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like June 2010. Where was the brunch at? West Egg, over on the west side. <laughs> oh, oh great. Right, yeah. spot. Okay. right near you got where you guys yeah. started. Yeah, yeah. Okay. where you saved our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Which we actually ended up, I didn't realize that we ended up moving into the condo above West Egg mm-hmm. for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. And so we ended, crazy, yeah, yeah. we ended up having brunch and then dated for about two and a half years mm-hmm. and then got engaged. And got married in 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love. Yeah. Crazy. So crazy. Now y'all have a baby. Now, now we, we have, have a baby. baby. Mm-hmm. We have a freaking baby. Wait, what? Crazy. Does Umbi have... <laughs> the have an uh, American name? Nope. No. Just Umbi song. And the reason we chose to just do Korean name only is... Um, big thing is, as Korean Americans... We're probably never going to speak Korean at home. And besides what we look like, there's nothing about her identity that she would recognize as being Korean-American. So we wanted to, even if it was a little bit of a struggle and people made fun of her name, I don't know how, but um, we just wanted to kind of instill in her that, and just remind her that just through her name that she is Korean-American. All get up. So you guys talked about how Andrew's a pastor, Mimi's a midwife. Tell us when you realized that that was something that you guys wanted to do for forever. You can start. Um, I would say for me, I I had no idea what I wanted to do in my life. So I started out um, at business school at Georgia State. And then I went into event planning 
Um, just because I always, I went into business school because that's what everybody else in my family did. And I was like, okay, maybe that's what I want to do. But I didn't really find any joy in it at all. And so then I went into event planning because I wanted to use the knowledge and education that I gained to help people. And so I thought through um, event planning, wedding planning, that I would be able to use my resources to help people have weddings. And I hated it. Um, wedding, the wedding planning industry is rough and you don't get any weekends and um, you just realize that it's such a corrupt industry. Like you up t uh, attach marriage, wedding, and then you upcharge like 900%. Um, <laughs> like you're in love? Yeah. Give me $5 million. Yeah, it's your one special day. You can spend $100,000 and take it out on loans. And that's okay. And it just didn't make sense to me. For anybody who is doing that, like it's not it's not bad, yeah. right? No, but, not bad. But it's just for people who can't afford it and right. feel bad about it, that yeah. sucks. There's a pressure. Yeah, yeah. there's absolutely a pressure. Right, I think right. it's yeah. I think it's fair to address like the uh, injustices that happen in an industry that you see on the inside. Oh, I absolutely, mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 But I mean, you know, people are going to continue to get married, and I think I think it's crazy that like you want to go buy a cake, and as soon as they find out that it's a wedding, they literally put on like another zero at the end. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. it's crazy. Same thing with like. Umbi don't like Umbi the wedding industry either. She's also not yeah. into the she's corruption, like the injustice. She's not looking forward to that. Yeah, so I'm all about like having a quality wedding, you know, doing amazing things for your wedding, but I don't think it's fair for the industry to charge so much just because it is a wedding. So those kind of things, I just didn't like about it. Um, and so I got into, I got to shadow... Uh, my friend's mom, who was a nurse, and um, she worked at a women's center. And when I got to do that, she just kind of explained to me what her daily life was like, what her daily work looked like. And she was just explaining to me, like, the circulation of a baby when the baby's first born. And I was amazed. I was like, wow, that's amazing. The body is amazing. And so then I realized I wanted to go into nursing. So I got into nursing, and I was always fascinated by labor and delivery. Um, so I ended up at labor and delivery, um, and I was in—I was at like a ghetto hospital, um, Atlanta Medical Center. Love y'all, um, but y'all ghetto, and <laughs> you know it. Um, <laughs> and but there at Atlanta Medical Center is where I met midwives for the first time. I had never known what a midwife was. I'd never heard of a midwife. And um, there were midwives that were taking care of patients, helping patients deliver their babies. And just like Jen explained earlier, it was they had options. The ladies came in and some said they wanted to have a natural birth and with no medication. And others said, I want medication. I want it all. Give it to me. So um, through that, just the interaction that um, these midwives had with their patients was amazing to me. And just to help them through such a tough process, because Delivering a baby is definitely like running a marathon. You have to work so hard physically, mentally it's very hard. There's a lot of components that can cause anxiety just because you're expecting your baby to be born. And so 
I just wanted to be a part of that process. And so that led me to further education. And now I'm working as a midwife and it's amazing. The one of the tough things though, it is um, a little bit non-conventional of a schedule that we get. Uh, so usually most midwives that you'll talk to, we all have to work 24 hour shifts. So I work one to two 24 hour shifts a week. And then on top of that, we'll see patients in the office. But still, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. I love it. And um, it's so much fun. And that's, like, beautiful to hear, though. Like, you're putting in that much time. You're you're having to be on it at all times. And to know that someone could go to the hospital or even, like, you know, decide to work with you as a midwife and know that you're passionate about that. Because it would suck if you're, like, in pain or you're about to give birth and the, the person doesn't even look like they want to be there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would you say is like the one intangible trait about your personality that you've carried with you since ever since you could remember that was the like main driving force behind like you getting to this point in your life? I don't know exactly what the trait is, um, but I do like helping people um, and um, I do think the healthcare industry, of course, is one of the biggest ways we can help people. And um, I do feel like if you're able to help someone physically when they're physically in pain or physically struggling through um, something in their life, if you're able to help them through that stage, then you're able to kind of get a little bit deeper with them. And of course, I'm not able to have these big, deep spiritual talks with all of my patients, but there is a level of connection where we we can kind of say like, oh, we went through this together. We went through labor together and delivered your baby together. And through that, I think um, we just we just know like, like God was present in that delivery. Um, whether they're a believer or not, um, I just feel like when we're able to kind of heal physically, we're able to also in some ways heal emotionally and, um, and mentally. And so I just think, I don't, I don't know what the trade is. Um, but I just think I enjoy helping people. I'll say yeah. probably Mimi's best trait. And we actually talked about this a little bit in the car is I think Mimi exudes just a natural sense of empathy towards people in which they can just feel extremely comfortable, right? And I think childbirth is one of the most vulnerable places that um, people will find themselves, or women will find themselves. And for her to have that trait of like, you know, knowing like, hey, this person's here with me, um, like it's one of those places that she knows or they know that she is who they want to be there, right? There were two instances that I'll, I'll say is like, one time we were at Ikea eating food and the, the, there was a woman and her mom sitting next to us. Mimi had delivered their baby. And uh, the first baby I think was a stillborn. And so Mimi was there, you know, when they were having to deliver um, a baby that was dead. And so obviously that was like hugely tough for them. But as soon as they saw her, they were like, oh my gosh, Mimi, it was like so great to see you. And so it seems like there was like this natural relationship. And then it also, we were at Whole Foods in Kennesaw and I was standing in line and this couple behind me was just like, hey, I think that was Mimi, our midwife. 
who delivered our baby like a year ago. And I like overheard it and I turned around and be like, it's like a weird, like, I don't even know how to like enter into that conversation. But I was like, hey, I think you're looking for my wife. And then, and then I pointed them in the direction and they both were just like so excited to I see her. I just got her. chills. And so like, I think, you know, to answer your question, obviously, I don't know if Mimi would be able to answer, but I think she just has this sense of empathy that really allows for people in their most vulnerable state, especially women to feel as comfortable to know like, hey, we're going to get really good health care. We're also going to build a friend and a relationship in which that we can kind of, that we'll hold on to and remember. So True gift. Very true gift, yeah. I'll get up again, again. I want to ask you, since you are probably one of my very few healthcare professional friends, um, what your thoughts are on universal health care. <sighs> there's... Um I don't know. There's two sides to that. I think um, one of the biggest downfalls to healthcare right now is that because we don't have universal healthcare, a lot of the decisions that are made in um, healthcare facilities um, and treatment and anything is actually led by insurance companies. So mm. what's covered by private insurance companies, that kind of determines what will give to the patients, even though it may not be the best option, best treatment option, or the thing that we'll see the best outcomes from. Um, the insurance companies kind of dictate what we can do and what we can't. So, like, for instance, if there's a specific procedure that needs to be done, some insurance companies may say, no, I want you to try this first. Um, and that may be because these drug companies are really kind of, you know, putting these executives into posh, uh, comfortable situations and they get a little bit more uh, benefit. And so then we get, we have to go by what they say. Um, so a lot of the things, and then there's just great medicines that are developed but we can't use it because it's way too expensive for patients. And so right. even if we prescribe those medications, patients won't be able to get access to those medications. And so they end up suffering. And then you'll see a lot of patients who can't get to those medications. They just won't get their prescriptions filled. And so right. there's, you know, and so then there's a block in what and how we can progress and help um, these patients feel better. So I think that's one of the negatives. Um, and then with universal health care, one of the benefits is though everyone gets health care all across the board. Um, and it should cost the same whether you're rich or you're poor. Um, but the also downsides to that is um, at that point, they're the people who are absolutely passionate about health care, you get kind of watered down a little bit because you have to treat so many more people and um you know one of the things that puts like great doctors aside from um you know just mediocre doctors is that uh, they may be able to do special procedures and like specialize in something and then they get paid for that um but a in universal healthcare, you may not see that as much. And so the great, great, great doctors don't have a reason to really stand out from somebody who's just kind of like mediocre. Right. So I think those are the tough things. And then also uh, one of the tough parts is that 
because it's universal and all of those funds are going spread across, um, then other areas of the hospital or healthcare system like nursing staff or um, nurse techs, they'll get paid less. And so if that happens, then there's not going to be great nurses available. Um, and there's already a shortage. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Um, well, and I think that's something that we're trying to figure out, but I don't, I don't know. I, Cause we look at the countries that do have universal healthcare and some of the things that they do are amazing cause they can get standard procedures for very small costs. Right. But then, um, like I had learned that after open heart surgery in Korea, who has universal health care, they don't have nurses to take care of the patients. All the nurses do is really give medications and like cleaning, bathing, feeding, all falls on the family. And so... Yeah, you just, you don't have, the resources <laughs> aren't there to go across the board. So right. the doctors get paid higher, but not that much. And then the nurses get paid like nothing. So they don't have an incentive to be like, oh, I'm going to be really great at what I'm doing. Right. So I think that's just, it's just tough. I'll get up again, again. When did you realize that you wanted to be a pastor? So we're doing a handoff with the baby. Um, so this is actually more of a recent revelation, something that I think started to develop as I've gotten older and a little bit more mature in my understanding. But I think generally for me, I've realized growing up, I've really enjoyed, similar to Mimi, helping people, like coming along their process, whatever it is, and helping them find some sort of um, clarification on calling or vision or whatever it might look like. Um, I just love doing that. So there was a time in which I was doing like personal training, CrossFit coaching, and I felt that was basically in the same lane of what I, what I was doing in the church. But for me, because faith and because of um, my spiritual walk is such a huge value and huge component of my life, I knew that this is going to be kind of the lane in which I hope to really um, move and help people uh, just to discover Jesus, just to discover faith, just to discover spirituality, whatever that might look like on a, um, I guess, real and personal, intimate way. Um, but in terms of like what I call the industry of church, um, it's also an industry I actually enjoy and really find to be unique and interesting because it's such a people business and I hate to use that word and I know for some people it may not it'll rub them the wrong way but um, being a pastor and being in the church is such a people thing that um, it's messy it's unorganized it is very much you know real life and so being able to be a part of that and um, come alongside people in that process, in that season of life for them was something that I found very fulfilling, something that I found very, um, yeah, convicting to be a part of. And especially, I think, for Asian Americans and myself, I think, um, and this might come off super aggressively, but I think growing up, the church did a bit of a disservice to our generation. And so to be able to come 
and now in some ways be a solution or finding a way in which that we can kind of revisit that part of what I see to be Asian American, not all Asian Americans, but more specifically Korean Americans. Like a lot of Korean Americans grew up in the church and now are very disillusioned and jaded and hurt by that. And I don't see it as a place in which they ought to feel like that, but I get how it happened because of how it was done when we were younger. And so, um, yeah, being now in my 30s and being able to meet people where they are and understanding like, hey, this is what the baggage that they come with. Let's kind of go through that because at the end of the day, it builds the church, but it also builds people and it makes people, I think it takes people to a place that they themselves eventually want to be on a certain level. And I just always find a lot of joy when people can get to that place. So um, I'm still kind of working through that right now, which was why it was a lot wordier than I would anticipate it to be. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, um, I went into college knowing I was going to be a pastor but when did you make that decision before college? Uh, right before college, the summer going into it. I was at a leadership retreat and a pastor invited anybody interested. This was in Georgia. Me. This was, yeah, in Georgia. Um, invited anybody interested in becoming a pastor to come up and receive prayer. And at that point, I felt convicted and uh, felt the tug to say like, hey, maybe this might be something I'd be interested in. I was more or less groomed to basically go into uh, church ministry. Uh, my mom, when I found out, when she found out she was pregnant with me, really dedicated to God saying like, this is my second son and I, you know, God for you, I want him to be a pastor and work in the church. And so I was already put into different positions and different moments to be surrounded with church. And so I, um, that's why you didn't hang out with John that much. (laughs) I know I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't allowed to, I wanted to. So that side of me wanted to, but um, I, I look at it as almost like if you're around a certain industry long enough, you can kind of see the the positives and the negatives. And I think God just happened to convict my heart at the right time to want to be part of a solution rather than um, kind of maintaining like a status quo of it, right? And so... Uh, when I was in seminary, I kind of did the the youth minister track and kind of felt like I knew where I was going to go. But that was purely because that's how it's always been. And then when we got married and moved down and got plugged into this church in Atlanta, um, that's when I started to see, you know what, like we have a unique opportunity to really, uh, for lack of better words, like disrupt the industry standard of church and do it in a way that almost becomes impactful for the people that will come in. And can you unpack me, that some more, like disrupt the industry standard as far as how? So this is this might ang- this might anger or rub people the wrong way, but it's all good, baby. Um, come on now. I remember growing up in the church, being taught a certain way of life, especially being Korean American and being a Korean American Christian, right? Like you smoke cigarettes, like you don't belong in the church, right? I think there was just this culture of church both in Korean American church and also in um, like broader culture of being some, being, being a place where you have to fit a certain mold, right? Typically you're looking at the political right. You're looking at even social right um, in terms of like much more conservative, much more like reserved. And there's a certain model of Christian in which you're supposed to become right. 
And so I grew up believing that and I grew up striving to be that sort of individual and that person. And then I slowly, slowly started to see, and this is true across all ethnic churches, like when you get into college, you have the people who will really either dive in and dig deep into that culture or just abandon the church because like this doesn't fulfill me as an adult. Now I can make my own choices and now, you know, I'm going to discover for myself and a lot of people leave the church. And so as I grew up and I started to unpack, okay, what is... Um, what is the point of church? What is the point of the gospel? What is the point of Jesus? It's not necessarily to take people and make them become and act and look a certain way, but to take people who are all broken, who will have all of their junk, who have all of their baggage or whatever, and finding ways to know like, hey, that's not who you are. Like, if you subscribe to the system of belief of Christianity, like, the truth is that you are a son and daughter of a God who loves you enough to give you eternity with him, right? And and if you subscribe to that system of belief, and I'm not saying, like, Christianity is the way, like, this is my, and this is where I've, I've differed as well. Like, if we're of different faiths, I'd still want to be your friend and dialogue and talk constructively with no agenda of saying, like, hey, you're wrong, I'm right, because that's what we grew up with. And I think that's where the church has failed. And this is why I, I want to do what I do so that, um, in my mind, kind of reproject what, what the church ought to be in the role. And, so, and, and what I've been telling people recently is that I think in broader culture, the church and like, um, Christianity as a whole generally had a space at the table and i guess what i mean by that is like cultural um like if you're talking about the table of table of culture like um christianity was generally the moral compass right like in the 90s like even even a lot of places in like the white house had a christian leader kind of giving sort of moral absolutely um, i mean you know like our country was founded with church and state exactly, being united exactly. So, like, we've um, always had a table, yeah. a space at the table. Yeah. But I think because of what has happened in the past couple of years, we've no, we're no longer welcome in, to, in terms of, like, the table of culture. And so now, if you say you're a Christian, it comes with so much assumptions and baggage, and, and people actually want to disconnect themselves with the term Christian because of what that um, tells people that you are. I mean, yeah, looking back, we don't have the greatest track record and you know the media will exploit things Absolutely. about yeah what you know what they would want to perceive about like you know religion and yeah all of these things and they they'll do the same things with muslims and yeah. you know stuff like that and have you read articles about like marty sampson i haven't i've i've avoided i've actually avoided reading that reading into the things that are happening within the church sure because part of it for me like i get very jaded i mean like oh my gosh like you guys we're making it harder on ourselves for sure right and like you see a lot of christian leaders falling like um like being exposed during the me too movement and stuff like that and preachers and sneakers and so, exactly and so like we've uh we've taken advantage of having a spot at the table and now, like, our, our sins are being shown, right? In and some fashion, I feel like, you know, the, uh, the lore of culture intertwined with 
the more commercialized side of Christianity yeah. from like a macro perspective is what's causing, in my opinion, this like, you know, in like social media and stuff. It's Absolutely. like, it's, it's like, cause everything in some way, shape or form, I'm sure that even midwives have some sort of popularity contest on Instagram. It's like, you know, everybody's about the followers. Everybody's about the clout and all of that. You know, yeah, what like saying? what they like, say is gold. Yeah. It's Absolutely. like, you know, it's all about personal influence and like people fighting for their voice to be heard. But it's also interesting because if you think about a church setting now, it's like, in what setting would you enter? And then there's like a group of people staring at a screen and singing. Right. And then and then you listen to someone teach for like 45 minutes. So like there's not many situations in our culture today where that is a norm, you know? It's such a strange thing. So for a non-believer or somebody who, who has never been to church, right. if they walk into that setting, they're just going to feel like, this is a cult or this is weird you know oh absolutely right. like we're singing we're like doing karaoke as a group <laughs> right and then we're doing some crazy like right. prayer meditation right yeah. and then there's a guy who comes up and speaks for 30 minutes about like you know about the bible and yeah. then you're done and you eat or you drink coffee and you hang out there's no other social like uh experience right that that you could replicate the church with right but I, th I think in that experience, as crazy and as like, as wacky as it seems, I think every element that's been designed for the church is in some ways built to really help people discover some things about themselves that are like deep within, things that they're struggling with. Like there's, there ought to be more empathy and more, you know, grace kind of being extended through those experiences. But we just don't, we just haven't been able to do it, mm -hmm. right? Because because of the baggage people are coming in with, right? Like if I was to ask you, like, what are the top five, like, things people hate about the church? Like, and then... Like hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, right? And like that's L like layers. And yeah, right. LBGT or LBGTQ. LGBTQ. Yeah, relationships, right? Right. And people just feeling like exclusivity or judgments, you know, things like that. And if I look at the Bible and if I look at, like, what I've been going through, I'm like, it it's terrible that these things are attached to the church because everything that I believe the church to be ought to be exactly opposite of what people have come to hold against it. And so, you know, I mean, we're, we're still a small church and we're still figuring it out. Don't tell me, don't get me wrong. I'm not it's saying grown like, a lot, though. you're going to come and you're going to feel like this brand new experience. Like we still have our own stuff that we're figuring out. Right. But at the same time, I think we know, we kind of know the lane in which we want to stay in and some people will like it some people won't but you right. know kind of is what it is but that's really what gets me excited of what we're doing now um as i'm entering into really my what is it seven years at four points and seven, then yeah. how many years before that five years doing youth ministry yeah so going into like the 12th 13th year of doing like working within the church so yeah. And for anyone who's listening who's, like, not a believer and you're just, like, listening to all this, like, just know for me that I did not grow up in the church. I know, like, for me personally, 
my parents, once they divorced, my mom felt like she couldn't go to church anymore because people were gossiping about her and she just felt not loved and not welcomed. And for majority of my younger years, I didn't go to church unless a friend of hers had invited me. And in that way, I felt like God had always like called me to be part of his of his family. And um, I was blessed by having other people reach out. And, you know, to be honest, sorry to interrupt, like the fact that your mom didn't feel welcome there because she got divorced. Yeah, I'll exact, always remember that. And it's the exact opposite that a person should, like that I hope a person would feel. Like, let's say someone is going through a divorce. Like, I think the one thing that they need most is community yeah. in their life. They need people around to say like, hey, this doesn't define you. This isn't like... This isn't a scarlet letter on your life. And it's that heavy, heavy layer of Korean culture. Absolutely. Being the bigger factor rather than actually who Jesus is. Exactly. And so because of that, I'm thinking like, why, why, why can't, I was like, why, 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 (laughs) why can't this, why can't a church be a place where you're going through a divorce? Like, this is where I'm going to come and find healing. Mm -hmm. This is where I'm going to come and find the people in my life to remind me like, hey, it's, it was, it's not even a mistake. It was, yeah. it's, it's an experience that you're going through and there's going to be a lot of things to unpack, a lot of things to talk about, whatever so it is to say, you know what, like, what can we do like in this next season of life? We don't want you to be by yourself yeah. because that would be the exact opposite of, I feel like progressing, like the more you can get around, get yourself around people, kind of talk through process through and have hope that like you know your life isn't over mm-hmm. and like discovering that and i think there's no better place to do that yeah than in the church because i again for those who aren't believers like in the system of belief of christianity is that at the end of the day we're loved by god and that's really what to identify that's what we ought to identify with not the labels that we might develop within the world I'll get up again, again. From a Korean-American standpoint, because I'm really passionate about our generation moving into this state of literally being the people that control the community. It's, it's our turn now. We're adults. What's the heaviest boulder that you're carrying with you as you continue to carry out ministry? Because obviously, for us three... It was a huge part of our lives growing up. It defined almost everything and has a huge impact on who we are as people today. I'm not going to lie. You know, I don't, I am not good at basketball, but I was forced to play at some point in my Absolutely. life because of church. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> like, you know, so, and like even stuff like that, like I, it's, it was like, so like for you continuing on to be this voice inside of our community here in Atlanta I mean you and I all three of us grew up here and we've been here for a long time like what's the one thing that you're going to like the one the biggest burden and then the one thing that you're trying to carry through as we continue to be the ones that now phase our parents out Uh, That's a great question. I've come to realize that I grew up very entitled. Like we had a lot of like we had a lot of blessings growing up. Um, And I don't think I think we look at um, white America and be like, oh, you know, they're entitled to X, Y and Z. I think I think I have had to address that I've had certain privileges 
that other people have not had. And I think as second generation Korean Americans who grew up like guys who have um, basically the same background as me, like I ha- we have to own the privilege that we have. But I think with that comes this unique um, burden of shouldering uh, a tradition and heritage and culture and passing that on to really the next generation, thinking of, okay, what is my children's children's going to be um, as a Korean American, as an Asian American? Like, what will, like, we have to think about, like, what's the next evolution? What's the next cultural pivot Asian Americans and Korean Americans will have to make uh, within, within the broader culture to be impactful in a positive way? Does that make sense? Um, so, like, a good example is my parents have a restaurant in Atlanta. Right. And uh, they started off just doing sandwiches and wings. And then Korean food started to take huge popularity. Absolutely. Like, you can go anywhere and you're going to get carby, like, in a sandwich or whatever. Like, Korean flavors are, like, the trend that you have to do. Kwan's Deli off Brady Street, right? You know, holla at, yeah. holla at them. And so we added bibimbap to our menu. And it has easily become the number one selling item. Right. Oh, it's not the bibimbap. It's the bibimbap. The the bibimbap, actually. It's all the bibimbap. <laughs> bibimbap. The bibimbap. Yeah. Yo, um, I feel that. And so I think Asian Americans in general have this unique opportunity of establishing this like uh, new norm in culture as saying that, hey, this is very much a part of America. Right. And we as second, I think we as second generations have to take on the responsibility knowing that we're not going to receive the benefits of that you know like our parents immigrated and kind of gave us the privilege right we have to take the i think we have to take the helm to take the next generation to the place in which they're going to make the impact does that make sense right um and it's sort of i don't want to call it a like a lost generation but because we're so in between like we're so like understand our parents generation and want to right. progress in the second generation we're going to be that segue for umbi's age right. to be able to like say like oh this is who we are like this is my identity as a, a hyphenated american for lack of better terms right because we don't really know what that looks like what does it mean to be a hyphenated american on an like ethnic basis like we're figuring that out like as a Korean American whether it's in media whether it's in food whether it's in business and it's so like um, different especially if like you grew up in the west coast you grew up in the south yeah Yeah, I'm I'm realizing now that like even just like the area of location plays such a huge role huge role now because if you grew up in the west coast you could have grown up in a predominantly Korean American neighborhood Mm -hmm. And and growing up in the bay is so different from growing up in LA and because of, I think because of those differences, we're going to fight different fights. We're going to have different conversations. <gasps> so true. That's a good way to put it. And fight we're going to, fights. like here in Georgia, because it's so ingrained in the South, like being Korean American here is not the same as being Korean American in LA, right? Or being Korean American like in rural Alabama, right? Like they're going to face things different that we'll never be able to understand. I mean, real talk, like when I first moved to Georgia, I was like, I need to be around more Korean people. Exactly. And so, like, that was one of the big reasons I was like, I want to go to Four Points. Like, I just know that there are people who, even if we don't talk about anything, I could look at you and be like, I know you know. Yeah, exactly. And so what I think happens for our generation is that we, we go through to make it a cultural norm so that my daughter doesn't have to have that conversation. 
Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the burden that we have to carry. I don't know what the, exactly that looks like. I only I specifically look at it through like the lens of the church because that's like the industry that I'm in. But for you guys, if you're in media, right? Like, what does that look like for your kids who might want for the next generation who's going to enter into media as like a hyphenated American, right? Uh, like a Korean American, Asian American, like. Do they have to ask and answer the same questions or is it going to be a different conversation? As far as the entitlement thing that you said that you yeah. carry with you. Thinking back, entitlement may not have been the right word. I think it was more privilege. Privilege. Right? Like, I think I grew up with, and this is specifically okay. second generation Korean American in the Johns Creek area. Right, right, right. right. Like now and now, Johns Creek is like one of the highest median income with the Absolutely. best schools. Right? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't like if I went to there now, like yeah. I would be such a Absolutely. bad student, right? And yeah. so like now as like Mimi and I had had purchased a home, like we can't live in an area in which we grew up in, you know, because of like what kind of neighborhood it's become. Because we just can't afford it. You right. know. And so thinking back it's like, oh man, my parents came to the States with nothing. Worked their butts off. Exactly. And was able to provide for us an education from a top high school in the state of Georgia. Right. And me just thinking like, oh, this is just like my school. Like there's a privilege there that I think a lot of us don't recognize. Yeah. And it has shaped us in a way that if we, as we perceive the world, like it's a disillusioned view of the world. <laughs> So on top of like all the stuff that we talked about, like in regards to being a nurse and then being a midwife and being a pastor, and now we have Umbi in our all of our lives, um, would you be down to talk about um, how that journey has been? And like even the fact that we did a podcast with you guys because you you do have a podcast. Um, yeah. In regards to the journey, um, yeah, we had a podcast that we were doing. Um, called the Growing Family Podcast, and that actually was the genesis of that was when Mimi and when Mimi and I found out we were pregnant the first time. I wanted to kind of have real conversation with other families and other parents and other people in my life that talked about what it means to have like a growing family, right? No offense to all the mom blogs out there, but it's just like that's just that just doesn't seem like real life to me, right? Like, what does it look like the days in which you? Uh, you don't want to be a dad, right? Like, what does it look like when your baby's like, when you're just so frustrated with that? And I just wanted a place, a creative place to be able to kind of dialogue about that with people because I know we all sort of had that or, um, you know, moms or so on and so forth. So we planned to do this podcast and then we were pregnant. And then unfortunately what happened in March, no, I'm sorry, what happened in February uh, 9th? Right? Yeah. Yeah, February 9th, uh, we suffered a stillbirth where our uh, son had passed away. Uh, it was a Tuesday. And then I got a phone call. And Mimi told me, like, there was no heartbeat. And so I was just like, what does that mean that there's no heartbeat? So like, that means the baby died. And then for some reason, I thought we could bring him back to life. But then she was just like, no, this is it. So I ended up driving to her work, just weeped in the office for like 20 to 30 minutes. And then realize like, oh shoot, what just happened? Type of thing, right? So we lost, um, we lost our son at. I always forget what number of week it is. 
It was at 35 weeks. At 35 weeks. And so a pregnancy, normal pregnancy is calculated up to 40 weeks. Sure. Yeah. So we're in the end game like nine months in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We were in the end game. And so uh, we had lost our first um, son. And at that point, we just did not know what was next. And so really, we were like, okay, do we do another podcast? Like, do we keep doing this? And we felt like it was a great opportunity to speak about something that really isn't talked about, which turned out to be a huge blessing for us. Um, and we just kind of started off this this podcast with news that we lost our first. And so, um, yeah, the journey through that was crazy. Um, ups and downs, really emotional, obviously. Um, really taxing because it really brings out a lot of brings out a lot of things that you don't even realize like you hang on to especially when it comes to like family and and parenting and so on and so forth Um, and so yeah that was about a year ago yeah and Uh, I think it's interesting because me being in the industry of labor and delivery um, you know everything was going normal and then all of a sudden out of nowhere we we, I didn't have any health issues during the pregnancy or anything. And so I think anytime anyone is pregnant, the minute that they find out they're pregnant, there's this joy thinking like, oh my gosh, a part of me and a part of my partner is building a human being. And so there's like this expectation of getting to meet this little human. And then when... When that doesn't happen, you feel like something's taken away from you and you feel like you just feel lost. And so um, I think one thing we've learned throughout this process is like even a lot of people who struggled with infertility or miscarriage at multiple miscarriages or things like that, they all kind of go through this process of feeling lost because there was this huge expectation that never came to fruition. And I think it hurts more because there is an assumption that if you're pregnant, the baby's going to be born, right? Like there's a trust in this process that um, this baby is going to come out, right? As soon as you find out that you're pregnant, like, oh my gosh, and, and you start planning it out, which, which is, you know, traditionally that ought to be the case. But when you go through a miscarriage or when you go through a stillbirth, there's like this violation of trust that you had with whatever being. Or for us, in our regards, it was like we had this trust with God. Like, you gave us this baby. Okay, we're going to do everything that we can to make sure, you know, it's fine. And then we lost him. And then it was just like, what just happened? Right? Like, why? And the big question is always why? And we all, and we basically came to the conclusion, like, that's a question that's unanswerable. Like, we just don't know why it happened. It just happened. It sucks. It really sucks. But who are we going to blame? Like, you can't blame anybody. I mean, I've, I guess you could possibly blame God. But in my, under, in my belief, like, it's not God's fault that we lost. It's just, unfortunately, the world that we live in. And because of that, you just have to learn how to process through this violation um, that seems to be so like human and so trusting. Um, but again, like Mimi said, after that, we realized more and more people struggle with miscarriages, more and more people struggle with uh, infertility and people who just can't get pregnant. Um, and that's, it just reminds me like, man, having a baby is 
absolutely a miracle from beginning until when the baby is out. And even six months later, I'm like, how is this baby still alive type of situation, right? It's just like, it's not really up to me, right? So for anybody that's listening that hears a baby in the background is confused by the narrative that's being spoken and hearing a child. So y'all got pregnant again right after right after how many that the ba- was a surprise the baby was more man these swimmers be strong bro i got the michael phelps so we we delivered the first on february, february 9th 2018 february 9th 2018 we got pregnant in june 2018, 2018. so four months after delivery yeah. and for us our our always conversation about pregnancy and babies were if we get pregnant, great. If we don't, great. We were fine either way. And I think, um, and so we were never on any contraception, birth control, or anything like that. Um, and so we never got pregnant until our fifth year of marriage. And so, yeah. and so we didn't, we just didn't think about it. Um, and then when it happened, I think that's where like all this excitement, joy came out. And then, you know, we found out we lost Eunyoung. Um, which was the name of our son. And then, so when we really weren't thinking about pregnancy after we lost him, but then we weren't also thinking about any birth control methods either. Um, And so when it happened, it was a total shocker. I was actually more disappointed and shocked and more anxiety. It wasn't a positive feeling. Yeah, Yeah. we were positive. Like, oh my God, we're pregnant again, right? It wasn't point, positive. What wasn't? Why wasn't? Y- it? You said it wasn't positive. It was not. No. Because we just came out of like a season of just figuring out, like, okay, now we can kind of move on. The hardest hardship yeah. in your life to date. Yeah, absolutely. Four months in after losing, you got yeah, yeah. Like, what's the angst feel like going into that? all over again i mean every day i was thinking like while i was pregnant every day i was like okay today's the day i'm gonna find out i'm gonna lose this baby oh no today's the day i'm gonna find out about that i'm gonna lose the baby so you were carrying that weight with you to the very end to the very very end end. yeah Yeah. very end and then um, not even after 35 weeks well she delivered early yeah so um I developed some complications where I developed high blood pressure throughout the pregnancy. And so we, my blood pressure got so high where I actually ended up having to deliver early. And so that put the timeline within a week of the... Um, the delivery of the first. Yeah. So um, that put us at... We delivered Unbi, our daughter, at 36 weeks 36 weeks. 36 weeks and three days. Yeah. Um, so a week apart from Young's date. So I was anxious all the way up until. And then um, I had to deliver by C-section because the baby was not head down. Um, so the baby was breech. And there was too many risks to help try to turn the baby. So I had to deliver by C-section. And so I remember even going up into the C-section, like... I was a ball of nerves. I was so nervous. And then um, once the baby came out, we heard her cry. And I think both me and Andrew, we just broke down at that moment. Like a baby. Yeah, we were bawling. Pun intended, <laughs> FYI. 
Yeah. Um, and then I think even like one to two months in, there was still this anxiety like, oh, today is the day I'm going to find out I'm going to lose him being. Or, and so that anxiety, I think, stayed with me for a long time. And there are still moments where I'm like still pretty anxious, but um, it does get a little bit better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to give people a timeline, we got pregnant in June 2017 with our first Found out that she he was going to be born March 9th uh-huh. of 2018. He ended up being born February, uh, 9th. February 9th, so a month early. Then we found out again we were pregnant June 2018. Uh-huh. And then the uh, delivery date was going to be the end of February. Uh-huh. So right towards the beginning of March. But then the doctor was just like, as we were progressing, it turns out that the baby might, we were going to have to deliver early because of like history and so on and so forth, which then putting the delivery date both in the same week of the first one. Yeah. And so. So it felt like deja vu most of the time, you know. But I think it was one way God was kind of telling us like, hey, you know, yes, you struggled a loss and yes, it was hard, but I'm still going to redeem this these seasons, you know, so you don't always have to think about February as like a tragic time, but it's also a time just to remind you that like Eunhyung, your first is with me and then we can mm-hmm. celebrate Eunbi here on earth. Uh, That's so true. Physically. Yeah. So it's been six months. She's chilling. She's good. She's cute. She's mad cute. She's eating now. So yeah. But I'll say this though, like it's been like, it's not what I expected it to be. Like, I know I'm a dad and all, but like, it's, you know, I'm thankful that we have Umbi, but it's still one of those things that we still think about. Like, for me, I probably think about once a week. Like, anytime I look at her, like, I'm not like sad when I look at her, but when I look at her, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot more stories that comes with her, you know right. what I'm saying? And so, yeah. you know, people always ask us like, oh, when, when are you guys going to have the next one? And we're like, I don't know, you know, it's, if we're going to be honest, we've talked about, you know, is this the only one? Do we only have her? So it's, it's, it's over, but it's also not necessarily over, but we're not like sad about it. You're just, we're just kind of dealing with, dealing's not the right word. I don't know what word I'm looking for. We're just kind of living through sort yeah. of this experience. Like day by day, I think. Day by day. Yeah. Just, right. yeah. Just taking everything day yeah. by day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's we have amazing. a little, we have a little frame of like an outfit, his, uh, his, um, what is it? Ultrasound and his yeah. like nameplate and stuff like that. We have yeah. it in the kitchen. So we see it every single day. So it's definitely something that I think we both decided to keep a part of our lives, which I could see where a lot of people would like try to forget it because there's a new baby. Right. But I, I know like with her, it's only because we had this experience, you know? So it just kind of. It's all together, for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I, after my father passed away, I constantly think about mortality in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of reasons why I am God fearing is because not only do I want to meet the source or the Creator, I also would like to one day see my father again as well. Mm-hmm. So, like. I hope I he's know. chilling with our son. Probably. <laughs> Teaching him the ways, Aww. man. Teaching yeah. him the ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a he's a song, dude. You exactly. Know? <laughs> I hope they're all sitting together. Like, all the songs. All the songs. Will be <laughs> One room, just chilling. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, and I think it's really beautiful. And I'm really thankful that y'all are so down to share your story. Like even from the beginning, because as someone who is married now six years and I don't know, like we aren't necessarily trying to have kids. And I know y'all were in the same position too. That's something that we like paralleled with as like a new newly married couple at the time was that we weren't both of us, both like couples, we weren't really trying and just seeing your journey and how, you know, like now seeing you with Umbi, it's like, it's like natural and it's, it was meant to be. And it's such a joy to say hello to her, knowing that um, there's, there's really an epic story Absolutely. on how she came to be. Yeah. So when y'all say you're not trying, y'all are like not trying, not trying or? We're not just, we're just not making effort. <laughs> Yeah, oh, so I, there's no, like, contraception, no birth control. I mean, you know, like, I ain't, like, raw dogging it. I mean, you know what I'm saying. You like, said you are not, or? I mean, you know, like, Gosh, I mean. I hope this is an edited mess. <laughs> like. I put a note in that says off the record. <laughs> um, you know, like, I we ain't using nothing, but, like, you know, like, pull out game, be quick, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know what I mean? That's I got a perfect sure. record right no, now, it. bro. You know what I mean? Like, I, get it. I mean, I definitely know? like pray to God that it'll happen if it's supposed to happen. You know that muscle like, like at no the rush. end of the penis that like holds it in, right? Yeah. I've been training that for years, my guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. God, I, this is going to stay in. This is staying in for sure. No, sure. like a teaser. Then we'll never get sponsored. This is the teaser. This is the teaser. <laughs> the teaser. A little soundbite that we put teaser. in. You know what I mean? Yeah. That little vein right there, bro. <laughs> Stop. Oh, man. Gotcha. He's strong. He CrossFit strong. But I'm actually, like, on the record, I do remember, though, like, even, like, everything that you had gone through, I remember you bringing up how you're, I feel like you're, th you were saying, like, you're that much better at your job. Yeah, how how has that affected you as a midwife now? Because you have experienced something that I'm sure that you've seen some of your patients go through. So um, it's it's really interesting. Um, the I actually have whenever um, there is a loss, even if it's like a miscarriage, I definitely just I I understand, you know, and um, I feel like. As tough as it was, like God has used that as part of my midwifery journey. And so um, when for some in the beginning, when I had to go back to work, I was a mess. And so even just going into an office visit with a patient, listening to the heartbeat of a baby, I just broke down because I knew that that was not something I would hear again from for Eunhyung. And of course, when I went back to work, we weren't thinking about pregnancy or getting pregnant again or having another child again. So just hearing another heartbeat again, it was devastating. And then when I had to go into deliveries, it was really hard. And so I remember the first delivery after I came back um, off of bereavement leave, I I held it together. It was just like a quick, beautiful delivery and no problems. And the patient did amazing. And I broke, when I came out, I just broke down, just broke down. Because as soon as the baby's born, one of the first things you hear is that crying, you know? You hear a healthy baby crying. Um, they're nice and pink and they're, you know, nuzzled on uh, mom's chest. And 
I just remember that that was one thing I didn't get to feel. I didn't hear her crying um, once Eun Hyung was born. And so, um, so it was extremely difficult. And then I think as time went on, um, I didn't forget but I think it definitely helped me. And it was crazy because a me, kind of a few weeks after, um, I actually encountered a patient who also had a stillborn. And before or like during at that time? Like after after I delivered Eunhyung, because um, um, at 35 weeks, you still have to deliver the baby. Um, so because you have to deliver, you're basically delivering a f and going through the whole delivery process, except there's no live baby at the end. And so um, I experienced a patient of mine who had a stillborn um, after I delivered. And so like we both, we both cried together. And, um, but it did, I think it gave me an outlet to share my story um, but also share with the patients to let them know, like, I understand how painful this is for you. Um, and that's all I can say is, like, I understand that it's painful. Um, and so it's interesting because any time in our practice when we do have a, a, a loss, um, a lot of the midwives or other doctors will refer them to talk to me and so I don't know if that's helpful or not but I think patients when they know that I've also experienced it they they feel a little bit more comforted that they know that someone who's taking care of them has kind of gone through the same experience as them um, and so it's just it's definitely sheds light um, for me to just realize like anybody who's expecting whether you're four weeks in or all the way till the end like there's always that expectant joy that you're you're really desiring, and so um, when it doesn't happen, there's just a lot of pain. But um, but there's also instances where we've had I've had patients who've had miscarriages, and then they got pregnant again, and were able to deliver a healthy baby, and so we rejoice together even more when we find that out. Yeah. So it's tough, but I do think um, I'm able to relate to patients in a way that some people may not be able to because it's something that I went through also. So um, it has given me more depth in ways that I never expected to in my midwifery practice. Mm -hmm. Like, thank you guys so much for willi being willing to share, you know, some stories that a lot of people wouldn't want to put out there. And I'm sure that our listeners maybe they'll connect with something that you guys have said, whether it's your journey to become a midwife, your journey to be a pastor, or both of your journeys with like experiencing a stillbirth. Um, I think we're going to close out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you to you. all of our listeners. Yeah. And maybe um, share actually where people can follow you and how they can listen Ooh, to I the podcast. That. You can find me on Instagram at Drew Song, D-R-E-W-S-O-N-G. You can find my wife at Mickey Mim. All of these are the letter M as in Mary, M-I-K-I-M-I-M. -I 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 we also have a podcast called The Growing Family Podcast where we talk about our story. So you can find a little bit more details. We actually had the songs on one of our episodes early on. And so I think it'd be fun 
to visit that because that was done a couple of years ago. Uh, hopefully we will be releasing a new season coming up as we raise this six month old um, and kind of go back to the genesis of what the podcast originally was supposed to be. We're throwing around a few other ideas in terms of media and hopefully we can get those off the ground. But yeah, um, in our podcast, we also have some contact if there are any questions or anything else that you want to reach out in regards to whether it's stillborn, whether it's, um, you know, your family growing, uh, whether you have a question directly for Mimi or myself, based on what we do, we'd love to connect with you. Awesome. And for Wazcast, you guys can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Wazcast Podcast. Make sure you guys subscribe and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear from us. If you want to hear from Andrew and Mimi again, or if you just want us to ramble about how cute babies are, uh, make sure you guys follow us. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye bye. Push me to